Welcome to episode 441 of the Cyber Law Podcast. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views not shared by our institution's clients, friends, family, or pets. Joining me for the news roundup, Jordan Schneider, China tech analyst at the Rhodium Group and host of the excellent China Talk podcast. Sultan Meiji, who teaches computer science, AI, and cybersecurity in particular at Duke. David Chris, who founded Culper Partners and is a former assistant attorney general for national security at the Department of Justice. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. We got fewer stories and hopefully we can go in a little deeper on them this week. And the story that I want to ask David to kick off is... Where is the administration going on cybersecurity and especially cybersecurity regulation? Because there have been a couple of different takes on that issue, including something where CISO weighed in. Uh, the management of CISA, Jen Easterly and Eric Goldstein, wrote for Foreign Affairs magazine. And um, at the same time, the leak of the national strategy on cybersecurity is looking in a different direction, or at least that's what... I'm hearing, and I, I can see why people think that. So, David, give us a sense of what you think is going on and what the clues add up to. Yeah, well, so we are in the rollout phase for the national cyber strategy. You know, there's a strategy for everything. There's a defense strategy, there's an intelligence strategy, and there's a cyber strategy that comes out every now and then. And each administration puts a certain amount of effort into writing these largely public documents that describe its approach at a strategic level to these core questions. And they're sort of related and there's always a sequencing issue about which one comes first. So we're waiting for the cyber strategy to come out. And as I said, there's this sort of somewhat organized, and then of course there's some disorganized elements to the rollout. Those include an article in the Washington Post by Ellen Nakashima a few weeks back, and then an interview with Ann Neuberger of the White House and this article that you mentioned by Jen Easterly and Eric Goldstein in Foreign Affairs. And, and all of those things together herald the forthcoming report. It's pretty clear the Biden administration wants the cyber strategy to be, to be in reality and certainly to be seen as a bold effort with a new era of approaches to critical infrastructure and regulation of cybersecurity, it's less clear to me whether it's really going to be bold. They're obviously making a play to push harder in the critical infrastructure sectors, and the patchwork of regulatory authority in that space is diverse and complicated, and so there's a lot of cat herding and coordination that has to occur. A strategy document would be good for that. I don't know, though, that they'll go so far as to do what some people have speculated, which is to sort of try to push towards general regulation of any, you know, internet connected device or some broad swath of internet connected devices. But we're sort of waiting for the real document to come out. I expect it will be fairly soon. And this, this article by, by Easterly and Goldstein is, is quite interesting in the sense that it sort of says, you know, Technology providers in the 21st century broadly need to be held responsible to make safer products and services the same way that car makers in the 20th century were held responsible to make safer vehicles. This is a tried and true analogy. And they're pushing for a culture shift in which the CEO and the board 
become responsible for cybersecurity and not just the poor chief information security officer standing alone. And they talk about government intervention, at least in the procurement space, if not more broadly. So that's how at least I take it as an initial matter. Yeah. So I, this is a longstanding debate. What's interesting is that it's finally showing up in documents from an administration where it's been kind of hard to get past public-private partnership. I, I do think you're quite right about how complicated it is to do regulation. There's no way you can do cross-the-board regulation without legislation. And yeah. by itself, that says to me, well, that's not a serious proposal, given that Republicans have just taken over the House and aren't likely to be very interested in this idea. So that kind of pushes us back into the idea that they will try to take their existing authorities and tilt them toward more cybersecurity regulation. And since Sultan yeah. used to work in this area inside government and has some idea what the authorities are, I guess I'm going to ask Sultan, do you, how realistic is it to make regulation much tougher than it is already with existing authorities? It really depends on the agency, which is, you know, the answer everybody loves to hear. But, you know, there are some really strong authorities. So, for example, within the federal financial services regulatory environment, you know, SEC, Federal Reserve, OCC, FDIC, et cetera, they have carte blanche. They can they can demand anything they choose. And there was actually a really good inspector general report from the FDIC that came out last week that actually highlights some of this and kind of pushed the agency to... to be a little more aggressive in terms of what they do in terms of evaluating cybersecurity at the banks as a, as a specific example. DHS also has a fair degree of autonomy in certain areas more broadly after, after Patriot Act and some of the legislation that came after 9-11. The challenge that seems to be the case in the Biden administration is you have kind of two layers of activity. You have what I call generally speaking the White House layer of activity, which is these broader policy discussions that individual agencies and, and working groups you know, have some degree of, you know, kind of turn the knob themselves, depending on how they feel at any one time. So, you know, CISN's got a very keen focus on federal agencies right now, trying to make sure that they are, you know, doing the best they can internally on the cyber side. When you get to the private sector, though, it does kind of flatten out into a lack of, of execution in a number of areas. The example I always give is, you know, somebody, if you're, if you go to your bank and you ever get a chance to talk to your bank president or chief risk officer, ask them the last time they had to disclose when they updated their firewall to the federal banking regulators and then, you know, move your money to a different bank after you've heard the answer. <laughs> so I, that all sounds right to me. CISA is in an odd position here because I think they, they want regulation, but they don't want to be the regulator. Yeah. I think they're, if, if they had to pick yeah. a role for themselves, I, for example, that entire foreign affairs article, if you do control F and then type in regulation, the yeah. return, you'll get a, a, a return of zero. Uh, they, well, this they, is, this is exactly the point, right? I mean, CISA is far more of a policy shop than yeah. it is a regulatory body, right? And, you know, if you were to go to, for example, Congressman McHenry from North Carolina, who chairs House Financial Services now. And ask him if he would be open to creating a new regulator in the form of CISA that owns cybersecurity across the private sector. I can only imagine the string of profanity that would come out of his mouth. Right. And I assume he's repeating what he's hearing confidentially from the financial regulators themselves. They don't want Absolutely. CISA anywhere near them either. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, you also have to remember the financial regulators are are only in as much federal agencies when they want to be federal agencies, and the rest of the time they they get they have their get out of jail free. We're not actually federal agency card, which is a whole other topic for another. Oh, uh, right. So, like the the Fed, it's not it's not even it's certainly not the executive branch. It's something else. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I had a similar reaction. So I was reading through this article in Foreign Affairs and I sort of saw some very strong language up front about the need to make people, you know, boards and CEOs responsible and the culture shift and by God, we need a new paradigm and, you know, it's table pounding, not in a bad way, but just very strong sort of cultural language. And it's in a highbrow publication sort of Traditionally, so far, that's been the space occupied more by Chris Inglis than by Jen Easterly and her group. But here it is, a strong cultural push in foreign affairs. And then the delivery on it seemed to me to be kind of, in terms of what they're actually requiring, a slightly weak tea version of the earlier executive order in which they sort of talk about how the market might not quite be doing it and therefore the government needs to use its, you know, federal acquisition regulation authority to sort of nudge the market by setting federal standards for things that will then hopefully, you know, proliferate out across the broader market. And I had been sort of wondering whether, you know, instead of that, I was, we were going to get some much stronger call for across the board regulation or something and it it didn't deliver that that punch and i that made me wonder what is actually going to be in this strategy document when it comes out because as i said i think they initially had wanted it to be big bold and be seen that way i'm not sure whether it will deliver there may be furious debates going on about you know about it even right up to the last minute yeah dave it's interesting you say that i interpreted that exclusively as the genuflecting of certain people trying to make sure that they got named to replace Chris when he leaves in the next couple of months, as it's been publicly yeah. reported. Well, it, it 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 could be be that it was it was like even the public-private partnership thing. I remember looking when they were they had that in their minds that you know Chris wrote a think piece about a new Rousseauian social contract that was necessary. And Ann Neuberger talked to the New York Times about all the great public-private partnerships that were going on. And Jen Easterly tweeted about how public-private partnerships was an outmoded label for the thing, and they wanted to call it strategic joint efforts or some other thing. And I was like, (laughs) wow, each of them has found their niche uh, and is doing it in their own, you know, maybe it's coordinated, maybe it's just people finding their comfort zones, whatever it is. But it, it sort of corresponded to what I knew about them. And so, yeah, I guess there's possibilities of people changing jobs because I have also seen that, that Chris might be leaving and I wouldn't I wouldn't blame him. He's served well and honorably over a very long career and done some great things. He, he One of my favorite it. public servants in history. He is, so. He's, he's he, very he good. Is. He's very good. Yeah. I, you know, and, he said and, he would not leave until this report was done. And I think <laughs> when he said it, it sounded like a promise. It now kind of sounds like a threat and i fear it may start to sound like a sentence (laughs) (laughs) well i mean he he did create that function and you set it up very well and and in as much as anyone creates anything new in the executive branch he's done it in a reasonably political way focused on trying to actually get something accomplished which you know is great every time it comes up i cannot help but say though and it's probably boring by now and it's totally unfair as well but this you know the emphasis on unity of effort that you can achieve by having not one but two senior white house cyber officials <laughs> exactly. unity has always baffled me a little bit so uh, and, you know and well, it, it's, it, 
you don't you don't understand. If we just had one more, we'd have all our problems solved. <laughs> exactly. He could be that good person could pass the disguiding vote. Vote. It would be a troika. Okay. All right. Let's go into another regulatory area because NTIA was set on a path of looking at a well, the, the White House, if you remember, six months or a year ago, put out this elaborate cyber competitiveness plan. I think it was Tim Wu's parting gift. And they assigned out a whole bunch of competition ideas to various agencies. And NTIA was asked to look at the mobile app ecosystem. And they've produced, Alan Davidson, who's you know a thoughtful man, has produced a long report on the competitive issues in the mobile app ecosystem, which is basically, he was asked to find reasons to criticize the Play Store and Apple App Store and the possible misuse of their control of those stores. And he's produced a very long and thoughtful report about that. David, does this mean we're going to see regulation here? It was a little unclear to me. He had to answer the mail, but I, I don't know why he, what we're supposed to draw from this report? Well, I don't know. I'll, I'll just start by r- reminding everyone that I, I have clients in the space, so no one should listen to what I say and everything you said, Stuart, about pets and other, you know, sort of points of view <laughs> you know, are emphasized here. I I mean, I take this in, in conjunction with the story we just finished talking about, about the cybersecurity strategy, and sort of think about the balance between, on the one hand, wanting to open up, you know, availability of apps on smartphones rather than running them all through these two fairly major stores, which, you know, curate and review apps on the one hand. And on the other hand, the cybersecurity risks that may, you know, follow if you can, you know, sideload, as it's called, an app from anybody out there in the world. And I just think the report actually... I mean, agree with it or disagree with its ultimate conclusion, I do think it does a review of both sides of, of that argument, and it is long and thorough. I enjoyed reading it. But I, th- I think it just points out the tension, basically, between competition policy, antitrust policy on the one hand, and cybersecurity on the other. I did not see it coming up with the win-win solution. I think there are trade-offs there. Maybe others are are have a different view or can be smarter about squaring that circle. But to me, it, it just points out some hard choices that have to be made. Yeah. So both Apple and Google said what you're getting, you know, and what we're collecting our monopolist rent for is to give you better security. And the report points out that it's not that much better because the, all kinds of bad apps get through. And the the monopoly rent is pretty high. Yeah, you know, I got to say, Stuart, on that, I that was a piece, and and you know, Sultan or Jordan may have better insight or you than I do, but I had the feeling like, I bet you they do screen out a lot of nasty stuff. I don't know that for sure, but I wonder how really bad it would be if you opened it up to the wild west. I guess it's a question of degree, but I wasn't totally persuaded. Yes, and that, neither was I, David. It's a, it's a fair question, right? It's an un, it's kind of a, a little bit unknowable, right? The two ecosystems between Apple and Android are quite different. And if you remember back before Android was officially part of Google, it was kind of a side thing for a long time. There, you did have options of app stores, and so you know, back there was a bit of wild wild west back there like 15 years ago, and it was. You know, you took your life into your own hands. If you put one of those app stores on your phone, you could see some pretty some pretty gnarly stuff. And I think 
you know, there, there's some great stories about that, but you know, th- there's a lot of unknowable here because of the lack of transparency. And so I think the one thing that I would, I would say that was kind of surprising out of this was that the various vendors didn't get a chance to kind of make their case in terms of, you know, the bad behavior and, and kind of what's actually going on inside of it. And so to me, the question is, how do we get a rule left? opacity of the system so we can actually understand what's going on. You know, the the API set for Apple limits to a degree some of the bad behavior in the system. Google is getting better about that. They're still chasing that a little bit more. But it's, you know, we're we're pretty far away from, I think, as a consumer being able to make an informed choice and ensure that you're, you know, you're you're comfortable paying the tax, which we're just not there yet. So I will say this again, if you're reading this with a cynical and defensive eye, you know, what does this really mean? Is there going to be anything that results from this? You just need to go through the recommendation sections and look for the word Congress. And as soon as you see that, you can ignore that recommendation because <laughs> it's not going not going to happen. And when you, if you apply Occam's razor in that fashion, there are a few things that look like they might be recommendations to the antitrust division to pursue the in-app payment requirements and some of the self-preferencing. That was the only stuff that it looked like the administration could do on its own. And if that's the case, well, you know, this report isn't going to have too much impact. I mean, Stuart, we have to be careful. If you start, you know, filtering out things from the executive branch that say that call on Congress to do something, it's not, I'm not really sure what the executive branch has got done in the last well, look, it, it, it makes the podcast shorter. Let's, everybody should be in favor of it. The silver lining. It finally reveals itself. And that's all for today, folks. Exactly. No, no, we're not done yet. We're not, we're not even done talking about regulation or, no. you know, pie in the sky regulation, but actually, or not quite pie in the sky. It's, it's the EU in the sky. We can't fail to talk about chat GPT and the latest anxieties it has given rise to and interesting ideas. Of course, I thought the most interesting thing was that the GitHub CEO said that the EU's AI Act just shouldn't apply to open source, which is, of course, the only thing that GitHub cares about because oh, it's too complicated. It's too hard. It, it just won't make sense. And he's probably right that the, the AI Act shouldn't apply to anything as far as I can tell. But there's a whole bunch of stories that talk about what chat GPT might mean. I thought Schneier had some interesting stuff about using AI for computer hacking, talking about how DARPA used to have a, a competition in which AIs were required to defend themselves and attack others. They did it once. They never did it again. And the only place that's being done now is in China, where it's sponsored by the PLA. This strikes me as maybe not the best outcome. I mean, I'm just going to jump in here, right? We are in this moment here of artificial intelligence, which for the most part still isn't actually artificial intelligence, but I won't get on that soapbox right now because we don't have six hours. But, you know, at the end of the day, what what are we discovering? That a lot of money has been thrown into AI in the last few years and that the first rounds of interesting use cases are starting to come out of that. And they're surprising because these are the first time, this is the first time really ever where we've seen technology fundamentally immediately take someone's job away. And, uh. you know, the way to think about it is, yeah, I spent a lot of time in Manhattan and I look at every single investment bank that is using, you know, the current 
economic situation as an example to not bring as many associates on. Because guess what? You can have one associate with a chat GPT window is now 10 times more productive than 10 associates. And so, you know, we're finally starting to see actual human workforce disruption. And so now everybody is wringing their hands. Oh my God, this thing, that thing, you know, whether it's artists or whatever. And the knee-jerk reaction of the current generation of politicos, whether it's in Europe or in the United States, is to say, okay, we need a regulatory framework around that. And so now you see the EU going for these massive, you know, regulatory programs. You're starting to see it in the Biden administration. You know, this the CFPB actually is talking about having AI looking for, you know, basically analyzing AIs for bias in the banking system, not to stop bias in the banking system. That would be too obvious. It would be to, to analyze AIs to make sure they don't introduce bias into the banking system, right. of which there are none, but you know, that's fine. It, it would be too complicated to say, have a look at, you know, lending decisions made by community banks and predominantly white zip codes or something, you know, something that would actually be useful there. All of these, all of the stories about chat GPT are, I am seen as an emotional reaction to people just not understanding what's going on and all of a sudden starting to see real disruptions in their lives and they're freaking out about it. Yeah, I, I, I think it, 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 part of it is the jobs it threatens are the jobs of the people who are writing about it. And, and all of them have, have been so smugly telling coal miners to, uh, to learn to code that it has, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it hurts to discover that maybe they should be learning to code. <laughs> well, it's it's so interesting that some of the initial jobs that people are worried about are writers and entry level programmers. Yeah. Right? It's it's a perfect if it's a perfect storm, right? You know, the the and the, the way I explain this is, you know, you can't have 20 years of technology development designed to build better technologies for people to build code to the point where you know, a 10-year-old with an iPad can write artificial intelligence code, which is kind of where we are and not have a workforce disruption. Yeah. And so, the, and so the way I'd say is, you know, when I was building tech for the market systems 20 years ago, I had 150 guys in my group and about a third of them, about 50 of them were quality assurance testers. These were guys who were checking the work of others basically to make sure we didn't introduce something bad into the system. That same group today has zero quality assurance testers. And the team is actually smaller. It's about 60 people over. So you went from 150 people to 60 people and you got rid of an entire category of job based on the on this change happening. We're just going to continue to see that accelerate with these AI tools. I well, remember, we, I mean, we have Japanese... two legal partners on the, on the call right here. I mean, are you, are you guys going to hire fewer first year associates? That seems like a pretty ripe, you know, place for, for downsizing. I don't see it yet. Although maybe, right. A lot of legal judgment. I'm just not going to rely on chat GPT, even, even a much better chat GPT, but could I, could I imagine saying to ChatGPT or a more specialized version of it, tell me what the law is in this area. Give me the citations to the cases in both directions. Yeah, yeah that's easy. And that's just a step up from shepherdizing and, and using West. So yeah, I think it, it, will, it will make research much more efficient. In the long run, that means fewer jobs for new lawyers. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. I was at one of the big investment banks in New York last week, and I was in a meeting, and the entire discussion was, can we have ChatGPT write that first generation of investment memos for an entire category of their investment yeah. bank function, right? And they did it, and it wasn't amazing, but it was, you know, you know, in, inside of two standard deviations are, are reasonable. So all of a sudden, if you can start doing things like that, I think the 
we're going to start seeing a disruption here on the investment banking side, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. It's kind of hack work that you get, but there are circumstances in which you just want to know that somebody has gone out and made sure that the case wasn't overruled in the last three years, right? And that's, that's a job that ChatGPT can do. Yeah, I, I do think the very last article, you know, so for those who don't get the email chains that we we send around over the weekend before we do this, the very last article that was in the list of articles we were thinking about was talking about censorship. And this to me becomes the most interesting thing for us is how do we make sure that, you know, like right now, can you imagine a, a Chinese bill to chat GPT asking for an analysis of political systems to... Right. to to give an honest and unbiased answer, right? I worry about that on the commercial side here in the US. If I'm using the chat GPT clone built by Google, will it recommend that I buy an Android phone, even if I shouldn't, right? And that kind of bias inherent in the system, we're barely getting our hands around it on the social media side to be able to even disclose things effectively. And some do it well, some do it poorly. You know, we're still in process there. And the thing that I do worry about is that the the knee-jerk reaction of, Government, government action and regulation over it is going to become a real issue that this market is going to end up, you know, looking pretty bad in a few years because the government will have in essence regulated it out of existence because they just don't understand it. Yeah, well, I, I, I think I, the censorship debate was kicked off by somebody who said, I could get ChatGPT to write a favorable story about Hillary Clinton and President Obama, but when I asked it to do Trump, it said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And who knows why, but lots of people have theories and it's going to be very difficult to, to know whether those theories are correct. It's It's been fascinating just to, to think about at what level it would make sense for this type of a regulation to apply. OpenAI, of course, I mean, I think their sort of business vision to the extent that there was one beyond just we're going to like make cool shit and sell it was not that they were going to be the firm that had the product that everyone was used would use but rather they would be this like you know like the keeper of the apis and sort of the there would be other companies who would build on their technology to sort of make products but because chat gpt is now the fastest growing consumer product in history with a hundred million users something that that took that took even TikTok almost nine and a half months they're now having to grapple with these questions of bias of misuse that they were already thinking about, but in a much more sort of proximate way with way more stress testing of 100 million people trying to, you know, get it to do things that will get Stuart Baker talking about it on cyber law far earlier, I think, than they were necessarily prepared to internally. I don't know. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I, I think that's to, right. But, yeah. you know, that that's tough. But $10 billion makes it a little easier to, to, to live with, <laughs> which is what they acquired from from yeah. Microsoft. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you. This was faster than they expected. This was, they may have been started with a focus on APIs. I think they have been fully in commercialization mode for a couple of years. Well, and it's absolutely clear that they have a data store that is second to none in terms of what you can use to train AIs. And uh-huh. so that's always the biggest challenge, right? So I think they're going to they're gonna kind of go down the Palantir, Lexus, Nexus, Bloomberg route and become the de facto source of AI training data through APIs or not. That's a separate question. And this nascent consumer or kind of enterprise individual product line kind of was a bit of a surprise, but I think they're going to make... I, it, it doesn't strike me as surprising for them to be a value to 500 
million dollars in the next 18 to 24 months off revenue so i i would say you know they're 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 way ahead of everybody else on on manageable data there yeah well as jordan's recent and very good ai podcast taught me there's like three elements to to ai there's the compute there's the algorithm and there's the data and you know, and nobody's going to compete with AWS and Microsoft and Google for compute. That that's already owned. And then comes the question of algorithms. And there's going to be a whole bunch of different algorithms. We don't know who's going to dominate that. But you're right that ChatGPT and OpenAI don't necessarily have the best algorithm. But if they can start to dominate in data, there's no reason why those three elements should be part of the same company. And we could see, I think that's a very thoughtful observation, Sultan, that that may be ChatGPT's best play is to say, hey, we'll be Switzerland for, for data. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so you all heard it here first. If I'm right, please, please send me your Bitcoin. <laughs> send money first. <laughs> all right. Well, I've, uh, that oh. is pretty much what the ransomware gang said to Ion Trading. Oh, that was and... a smooth transition, Stuart. <laughs> well done, sir. I don't think Chat GPT could have done that. So your job, at least, is very safe. I've, I've had it. That's... I've tried to ma make it write me podcast questions before. It's like, it's like yeah. a six and a half out of 10. I've had some co-hosts that are sort of at its level, but I feel like I got to edge I, on it. At I least think, you know, we, we, <laughs> should, we should ask it now that it can do voices. I think we should just ask it to do an entire episode and see what it turns out. I think it'll do, I'll, it'll do me really well because I'm vague. Interesting. I think Stuart, Stuart, you you will be the challenging one through. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, it may it may say as it says about Trump. I'm sorry, Don. I just can't do that. <laughs> well, I mean, like, okay, let's let's try to keep this on track. I know the producer is probably yelling at all of us, and we've just muted him, and he can't say anything. But the Iunger thing is interesting. It's a story that I've I actually expected to be a far larger story because of its disruption to to this very specific part of the market. You know, something like six hundred and fifty. That's the last count I saw. Institutions had to execute and clear kind of, you know, these these transactions manually, you know, because Ion took this system down. Now it's still not back at hundred percent, they're still doing it, but it is clear that Ion paid the ransom to to Lockbit to get their systems back online. Yeah, much good it did them, right? Yeah, I mean it's they're they're gonna be disrupted here for a little bit because I sure as heck wouldn't use those systems live with having somebody's fingerprints inside them, especially given the hundreds of billions of dollars a day that flow through that system, those those infrastructures. Well, so doesn't that suggest that uh, the ransomware gangs, even though it's a harder target, really should be spending less time going after the the hospitals and the schools that bring them such bad press and instead go after trading platforms and uh, Wall Street folks that nobody feels sorry for when they have to pay? I mean, going from the NSA to strategy for ransomware gangs, I did not see that coming for you, Stuart. But yeah, I mean, they, but the question is, is like, what order of magnitude did they end up paying, right? Was it, you know millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions. I mean, I, I think we can all assume it's tens of millions, but like, that's an interesting one. There are a couple hundred firms like Ion floating around. Ion was a particularly ill-regarded firm for within the these their banks. I've heard from a lot of my friends that they were mismanaged, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, they were probably in the 10% most likely targeted anyway, and they certainly had what seems like the, the worst technology stack for this just because of their age and, you know, lack of management and stuff. What is kind of interesting, getting back to our regulatory conversation, is more than a few banks have kind of come down on the regulators, especially the British regulators, to 
for letting them operate such a bad infrastructure uh, that touches yes. so many people. And so there's this little bit of a hint of, hey, guys, can you regulate this a little bit better? So that might actually be an interesting part of this discussion to see the investment banks actually go into the regulators and say, can you regulate our tech better, please? And there's a hint of this in the foreign affairs article as well, yeah. that the key here is to is to identify the, the biggest participants in the market and make sure they're meeting standards. And, yeah. you know, that's, that is a very effective quasi-regulatory approach. It's also deeply yeah. anti-competitive. It's kind of saying, uh -huh. okay, we're the five people who matter. We're going to regulate you and the other people are going to be cast into outer darkness. Well, I mean, Stuart, they are learning from the best. That is what the Federal Reserve and OCC does with the tech and the banking system. There yep. are, you know, just like there are the GSIBs that have the highest regulatory burden from the banking side, there are tech providers that are inside the wall, if you will. And it's the old joke. Nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM. Instead of the banking system, there's a very small list of tech providers and nobody ever gets in trouble if you use one of them, even if you are hacked on a daily basis, like they all are. <laughs> Okay, I've pushed it off to practically the end. Is there a cyberlock angle to the Chinese balloon? I mean, aside from it just being the best national security story we're probably going to get over the next few years, maybe, I don't know. It's a, it yeah, well, look, they, they, They're probably doing intercepts. And we have decided since I used to work at NSA that intercepts are an important part of cyberlock. So I guess that is... I guess that's the point, that it's highly likely the Chinese were intercepting a whole bunch of signals, and they're high enough up that they could they could have sucked up signals from, you know, a 100, 200 square mile area. There are at least two areas that I'm actually kind of fascinated about this story. One is, given where it was flying, it's not just intercepting the signals, it's figuring out point and destination, which might not always be obvious, which I think is kind of interesting. So, okay, there's a specific geography in Montana, you know, what satellite is it talking to, et cetera, et cetera. That's some interesting data they might have. The second one is, and I've been fascinated about this for a long time, the intra-satellite and satellite-to-ground communications encryption technology the Chinese are using. For a few years now, they've been using some interesting stuff. You know, I don't want to say quanta, but like they've been using some more advanced tech. And so to me, when we recover this, this piece of hardware, I'm very excited to see what signaling system it was using. So that to me is interesting. Don't, don't you think it, that, that they, they had like three or four days to transmit a message that says, start encrypting everything now and then burn all the systems? <laughs> I mean, who knows? Maybe we were blocking those signals with our own system because the, the DOD has been pretty open about the fact that there was some signal blocking going on fairly early on. So okay. the question is yeah, maybe I, it was I, it's possible. Yeah, they've been talking about that. So I would say, you know, I just want to see what the hardware looks like. I, yes, the, I think uh, we all do. I, I, yeah, and the, I, I'm, I'm going to guess it's going to look a little you don't salt think and it, crusted, You don't but... think we're going to, you know, I mean, like when planes fall out of the sky, like all you're left with is the black box. I don't know when something falls 50,000 feet feet down you end up being left with all that much when it hits the ocean you could i don't know right. i i thought they would have like figured out a way to grab it or something as opposed yeah, to shooting well, it out it, of the sky. up sixty thousand feet it's kind of hard to hang in the air up there but i yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I i i was disappointed at the lack of imagination shown there every single picture every single video you kind of see that little bus the multi-bus thing which i don't understand why everybody always uses bus as a unit of measure it's like a cubit for the 21st century right? <laughs> right but it's like it's like it falls and then it get the video gets cut off i'm waiting for like some weird thing where it shows like four seven sevens with like a big a big net underneath <laughs> right? it or something exactly. <laughs> and this whole thing about you know, a waterway is all just a ruse and there was this really interesting coordinated 747 landing in Dallas a few hours later or something. I don't know. I'm just 
just I'm, I'm hoping it was something more interesting yeah. than it just hit the water and shattered. Yeah, yeah, there was a so Red Bull had some stunt where they had a guy jump out of a balloon that was like eighty thousand oh, right. feet in the air. Oh, I don't, yeah, know, I don't know why we didn't there, call right? them up to help with this. Uh, I feel like they've got <laughs> the uh, right the right technical technological solution for us here. <laughs> yes, that's right. He could jump out. Just with grab the it net. on the way down. <laughs> I'm, I'm just I'm just imagining the procurement guy in DoD getting the phone call. Wait, you want me to full source what to Red Bull? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I I was surprised they they, they you could have thought they could put a, a laser on the back of a C47, lower the ramp, put the, the laser out there, and just fire away. <laughs> Oh, the ABL system. I miss those days. All right. One more story that I wanted to cover, uh, just because I've been following it so long, and I'm so surprised how poorly it's been covered on both sides. And and this struck me as a very interesting story. This was Matt Taibbi doing Twitter files, and maybe mainstream media was just determined we're never going to cover that. But he found a reason to believe that Hamilton 68, which is a very respectable organization that tries to identify what the Russians are pushing as their preferred storylines by analyzing a bunch of accounts that they identified as either Russian or Russian influenced or, you know, reliable Russian allies, what we used to call in the old days fellow travelers. And Taibbi goes into Twitter's files and discovers that Twitter had reverse engineered the methodology that Hamilton 68 was using and had found that many of the accounts that they were treating as fellow travelers and Russian influence and bots were just right-wingers. And so he said this was a complete scam. It was McCarthyism. And he's quite right. It was milked by the media over and over again, saying the Russians are saying this and the Russians are saying that because they were always attributing those messages that were by and large right-wing messages to the Russians as a way of discrediting them. And he said, that, you know, this is all just a scam and it, it's getting enormous amounts of traction on the right. And the mainstream media who really were complicit in the original part of, you know, to the extent it was a scam, they were part of it is just trying to ignore it. I got into it partly because I thought Taibbi sounded kind of right, but I also, you know, I know some of the people at Hamilton 68, so I'm 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 conflicted here. I think Taibbi's got this wrong. What Hamilton 68 did was they borrowed a, a, a capability or a, an algorithm that had been used to see what ISIS messages were being promoted inside the U.S., Back, if you remember, when we were worried about ISIS trying to corrupt the youth of America and Europe. And they said, well, we can apply the same technology to the Russians to find the messages they're sending to corrupt American politics. And it turns out that that was a pretty sloppy technique that they just basically said, well, who looks like they keep saying the same thing as the Russians? We'll stick them in our, our thing and call it Russian influence. And that's not completely wrong but it's also not completely right. I can't call it McCarthyism because they never revealed who they were using. In fact, they fought with the media when the media tried to say this is all Russians. So Amazon 68 probably is getting a bad rap here. And Taibbi is, uh, he, he doesn't trust anything Twitter said before uh, Musk took over, except on this where 
clearly Twitter was had an ox that was being gored, where Twitter was being criticized for allowing these bots to run wild on its network. And they were mad about it because they weren't and they didn't want to be required to take down legitimate conservative accounts. And so he's saying, well, when Twitter gets mad about this and says Hamilton 68 is, is all BS, they must be right about that because I really want to believe them this time. I think that's probably excessive. So this is a this is one where there is a story here. I don't think it's one where either Matt Taibbi or Hamilton 68 ends up looking all that good. But this is not one where you should say this was a, a scam run by the usual swamp suspects. It was bad methodology. It was hyped improperly by the mainstream media. We should learn to be cautious about their enthusiasm for criticizing the right with any tool that they can get their hands on. But I just don't see a conspiracy hey, here. Hey, so Stuart, that's my effort to be measured about it. Yes, that, David. That was, that was very measured and, and well. I, it won't happen. Right. <laughs> try, try not to do that or we'll have to retrain the model. I, you said you know some folks at Hamilton 68. Have they issued any responses to these allegations or is there any other side of it or is that still forthcoming? There is... I'll tell you what, if you Google for it, you're going to have a hell of a time finding it. But yes, there is a fact sheet that they have put out that kind of explains this from their point of view. But I think they have been totally swamped in search results by people who are repeating what Matt Taibbi said, which is one reason why I wanted to say this is because I love the fact that he's doing what he's doing. And I think many of the things that he found in the Twitter files really raise questions. But this one, I think he's... He's, he's pushing it. Okay, we were going to talk, and I will ask Jordan and maybe Sultan, there's this talk about whether Chinese middle class, the Chinese wealthy, the 1% or 5% are getting out. I think the, the answer to that is, yeah, since 2011. But the question is, is there some broader exodus or money exodus from China as a result of how badly things have gone in the last three or four years. It's an interesting thing. So, but, you know, within the the realm of being a college professor, the vast majority of my students are, are PRC citizens. That's just been the case in the American academic system for a while now, especially in business and engineering. And 99% of the time, in the last five years, the students come here, get educated, and go back. They don't stay. They don't do their internships. They don't do go through the traditional kind of graduate school immigration process. Last six months, 12 months, it's been almost 180 degrees swing. And so now the kids are staying, they're getting jobs, their parents are moving over, you know, they're, they're getting American bank accounts. You know, a couple of years ago, the kids would use WePay for everything and get, they get frustrated if they couldn't use WePay at the, you know, the 7-Eleven or the Starbucks. And now, you know, they're walking around with Amex Platinum cards driving, you know, driving real cars, all this kind of stuff. And it seems like we are starting to see some more chinks in the armor of Xi's regime. And by opening up kind of this, this post COVID open up, it got to make me wonder if we're actually starting to see some of that capital, some of those people leave because they just don't want to be part of that system anymore. They don't want to get trapped inside. Jordan, you got just such a look on your face when I was saying this. Come on. I, I want to hear your well, thoughts you, on the whole thing. You, you can't say chinks in the armor. It's 2023 Sultan. 
Um, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, even though the, the chat GPT oh, hasn't quite uh, stopped you on that. But neither I here. Even, I didn't even hear that. I am so sorry. I, <laughs> um, I, I totally so, meant a different thing there. So I don't know if you want to re-record it. We can just run this. Come on. No. We're going to go for show. It. This is Stuart's show. I'm sorry. I forget. So, no, no. This is, know, I, I'm totally yeah. getting thrown under the bus on that okay. one. All right. So uh, under perhaps three buses uh, of satellite. That was a joke. So, you know, the, the sort of push-pull dynamics of, like, you know, wealth and, like, high emigration from China is really interesting. And I think you're really going to start to see the dynamics play out over the next 6 to 12 months because, you know, she, like, political trajectory, crackdown on tech, whatever, I think that's baked in. But what, what I would imagine was motivating your student sultan far more than that sort of stuff was zero COVID, which is now no longer a thing. And sort of having to decide at, you know, 23 or 33 when you're finishing your PhD, like if you wanted to either be in China or be anywhere else in the world is a very different trade-off than like, okay, I can live in China, eat the food I want, be near my family and, and still, you know, go to international conferences and, you know, go to Paris for Christmas or whatever. We're really going to see, I think, in the coming months and years, just how much this sort of thing will, sort of Xi's trajectory and the rumblings of an exodus we've seen in the past few years was more a living under Chinese zero COVID is a huge bummer or a sort of more deeper rejection of where, of sort of the economic and earning potential trajectory of working in China, as well as the political system. All right. And look, if, if there's a jobs depression or recession in the tech sector here, it's a bigger one in China. And so it just may be you come out of school and you say, where can I get a job? And if there are more jobs in the U.S., you're more likely to stay in the U.S. And so it may be as simple as that. Sounds about right. Okay. Jordan, Sultan, David, thank you very much for joining us. For our listeners, send comments to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Or leave a review if you want to have your views read on the air at iTunes or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And this has been episode 441 of the Cyber Law Podcast. And that's all for today, folks.